It uh, should have been the best day of his life, but it turned out to be the worst. And the whole reason this beautiful moment got turned upside down is because he didn't know how to deal with the guilt. His name was Neil, and he was getting married. His fiancée's name was Amy. And they weren't just getting married. They were getting married at St. George's Hall in Liverpool, England. Now, if you understand anything at all about the history of Great Britain, or if you've ever had the privilege of traveling over to that land, you know that all throughout England, it's just a place that's covered with all kinds of palaces and mighty cathedrals. And yet, of all those historic places, few of those buildings can rival the epic look and grandeur of St. George's Hall in Liverpool. I mean, you talk about a magnificent venue in which to host a wedding. For Neil and Amy, this is going to be a glorious day. Well, the day before the wedding, Neil realized that he had never returned the forms to book the venue. Amy, his, his fiance, she was handling all the other details of the wedding, the dresses, the tuxes, the food for the reception. All Neil had to do was make the deposit and reserve the building. Pretty simple, right? But he forgot. He dropped the ball. And it wasn't until the day before the, the wedding that he realized his horrible mistake. Well, he was so afraid of letting Amy down. I can't let her know that I blew this. I mean, he was just so overwhelmed with this feeling of guilt, he panicked. And he came up with this plan. The next morning, the day of the wedding, he went to a public phone and he called the officials at St. George's Hall. And here's what he said. This is not a hoax. There is a bomb in your building. And it's set to go off in the next 45 minutes. Now, he did his very best to disguise his voice, but he was quickly caught and arrested and sent to jail for 12 months. And we're thinking to ourselves, what an idiot. Thinking this lie was going to cover his tracks and save him from the biggest embarrassment in his life. But all that, I, that lie did was take a very bad moment and make it something even worse. Now, here's the good news. Amy has forgiven him. She is sticking by her man. And when Neil finally gets out of jail, the two of them still plan to get married. Only the next time around, Amy will book the venue. <laughs> now, here's why I'm telling you this story. Of all the emotions that we human beings experience, there is none so heavy and none so hard to deal with as that feeling of guilt. You know, if you ever opened up a Christmas present for a friend of yours and then realized you didn't buy him anything? <laughs> How do you feel? Guilty. Or do you ever make a promise to a friend that, yeah, yeah, I'll be there tomorrow. I'll, I'll help you. Here they are in a time. Yeah, I'll help you out. Count on it. I'll be there. And yet the next day something comes up and you forget all about that appointment and you never show up. So how do you feel? <laughs> Guilty. I let him down. Or your dad is showing his age and, and you do your best to care for him, but the two of you don't always see eye to eye. I mean, the last time you talked, uh, things got pretty heated and you lost your cool and you said some things to your dad that weren't nice. And then the next day he has a heart attack and dies. And so now he's gone and you're never going to see him again. And you're never going to have the chance to tell him, I'm sorry. So how do you feel? Oh, so guilty. Or here's a mother who takes on a job just to help the family make ends meet. And yet in order for her to accept that job, that means every day she's got to leave her four-year-old at a daycare. And every morning when she drops off her child, the guilt just chews her up. <laughs> How can I call myself a good mother and do something like this? And what, in every one of those scenarios, what adds to the trauma, it's not just this feeling of guilt. I mean, that's bad enough. But it's also that sense of shame that comes along with the guilt. You know, say, say you were caught embezzling from the IRS, and so you have to pay a $50,000 fine, and you have to spend two years in prison. Well, you pay the fine and you serve the sentence, so legally the guilt is gone. I mean, the penalty's been paid, 
But here's the hard part. The word is out, and everybody back home knows what you've done. So the first time you come home and you see some of your friends, the first time you walk into that store and run into some people, you know, immediately you begin to wonder, okay, what do you think of me now? Now that you've seen me at my worst. And it's that sense of shame that is just overwhelming. See, every one of us here has messed up in ways that we hope nobody else ever finds out about. But when they do find out about it, man, it's so hard to face them. That's why I love that story in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 2, you know, Jesus is teaching. He's in in a house that day, and the house is just packed, and here he is teaching this lesson, and yet right in the middle of the lesson, clods of dirt and mud begin to fall from the ceiling because there's four guys up there in the roof just literally tearing things apart. They've got a friend of theirs who is paralyzed, and they want Jesus to heal him, and they don't care who they upset. They just know Jesus is the only one who can help our friend, and whatever it takes, we're going to get our friend to Jesus. And so after creating this giant hole, they carefully lower their friend down through that hole and they lay their friend at the feet of Jesus. And do you remember the first words Jesus speaks? He says, son. And in Matthew's account, he adds this, son, be of good cheer. I love that. Son, be of good cheer. And here's why you can be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. And I'm thinking to myself, Lord, what good is it to forgive the sins if the man can't walk? Jesus, shouldn't the first words out of your mouth be, get up, pick up your mat, and walk? And then, as the man's walking away, you can pat him on the back and, hey, by the way, your sins are forgiven too. But Jesus deliberately turns things around. Why? Could it be that he's teaching us that greater than our need to walk is our need to be forgiven? Could it be that Jesus is showing us that this feeling of guilt can be just as crippling and immobilizing as a broken spinal column? See, I think Jesus is showing us there in Mark chapter 2 that the greatest need of all is our need to be right with God. We need His grace. We need a clean slate. And the only place that slate can be made clean is at the cross of Jesus. Now that's the lesson we're going to learn from Hebrews chapter 9. Take a look at this with me. Hebrews chapter 9. You know, there's a lot of people who kind of have this idea that, that forgiveness, that was a totally new concept and we didn't learn about it. Uh, until, until the pages of the, of the New Testament. You know, this idea of being forgiven was something foreign to Moses and writers of the Old Testament, and yet that's not so. I mean, that word forgive is all over the pages of the Old Testament. And that's what the first 10 verses of Hebrews chapter 9 talk about. It tells us and explains to us this elaborate system that God had set up with the tabernacle. So even back there in the days of the Old Testament, the barriers could be removed, and people could now be reconciled to the Lord. They could once again feel free to approach God and have a chance to move close to Him. But here's the catch. What God provided in the Old Testament was merely a temporary fix. The final, ultimate solution, all those animal sacrifices were just constantly pointing forward to something better. Because the final, ultimate solution was what Jesus would provide on the cross. In other words, back there in the Old Testament, God provided a a covering for our sins. But the full, inward cleansing wouldn't come about until that perfect sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. So think of it like this. It's you got a stain on your shirt, you know, a spot. And yet nobody can see it because you're wearing a sweater. And with a sweater, you've got to cover it up. That's what that Old Testament system did. Or here's a person, they're dealing with this chronic illness. And so they got this bottle of medicine they received from the doctor. And every day they got to take that medicine. And when they take the medicine, it helps. Or at least it gives a relief from the feeling of pain. At least it deals with a lot of symptoms of the disease. But that bottle of medicine never actually cures the sickness itself. The root cause of all the trouble, it's still there. 
Well, that's what the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament did. They provided a temporary fix, but the final cure, that didn't come about until Jesus died on the cross. So that's why I want us to pick up the account here at verse 11. The first 10 verses have told us all about that elaborate system back there in the Old Testament, all those animal sacrifices. Now contrast that with the perfect sacrifice that Jesus makes on the cross and how it's his sacrifice that finally, actually, enables us to be set free from that feeling of guilt. Watch this with me. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 says, But when Christ came as our high priest came and brought the good things that are now already here. Get it? It's here. It's ours to claim. It's ours to possess. He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. It's talking about heaven. A place that's not made with human hands. A place that, has, that is to say is not a part of this present creation. And get this. How did he enter? How was he enter, able to enter that more perfect tabernacle? He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. Now right off the bat, I'm thinking to myself, shouldn't we be talking about the blood of the lamb? You know, when I think of the Old Testament and the sacrifices, I think about that pure unblemished land, the lamb that had to constantly be offered. But here he talks about goats and calves. Why? Because those were the two animals that were used on the most important day of the year for any Jewish person. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the day that is talked about and described in Leviticus chapter 16. That's what he's making reference to. So let me give you just a really quick summary of what happened on that day a week before The Day of Atonement, the high priest is taken away from his home and put in a secluded spot where he's going to be completely alone. And he's there all week long just to make extra sure that he doesn't touch anything unclean and thus disqualify himself from all he's going to need to do on that Day of Atonement. So all week long, he's in this this special place all by himself. I mean, food's brought out, clean food is brought out to him. But other than that, he's alone. And all week long, he's constantly washing his body and trying to purify his heart. The night before the Day of Atonement, he never goes to bed. He stays up all night just praying and reading Scripture. And then the next morning, the actual Day of Atonement, very first thing, he he takes a full bath. He washes himself from head to toe, and then he dresses, not in his typical glorious high priestly garments. No, on this day, he wears a different kind of garment. He puts on a piece of pure, unstained white linen, something that's never been worn before. Dressed in that white linen, he now comes to the tabernacle. All the people are watching this. He comes to the tabernacle leading a bull, a bull that he had to purchase himself. And back in that day and time, that's not cheap. I mean, this is something that really cost him. Because you see, first of all, he has to make a sacrifice for his own sin before he's going to be able to help anybody else. So there in the public courtyard, he kills the bull. The sacrifice is made. And now the high priest takes some of the blood from that bull and he enters into the tent itself. And not just the first room. Now, the one time, the only day of the year, he enters into the second room, the most holy place, into the actual presence of God, where he now begins to sprinkle the blood in front of and on the lid of that golden box we call the Ark of the Covenant, the lid that is referred to as the mercy seat, symbolizing how God covers our sin. When he's finished with that, he comes back out, and there's this little booth that has been set up in that public courtyard, a little tiny booth, and he disappears behind the booth as the people are watching He disappears behind the booth. There's a pool of pure water there. And once again, he fully bathes himself. Then he puts on a second pure piece of unstained white linen, something that's never been worn before, a second garment of white linen. As he comes out, now he takes a goat. He's made a sacrifice for his own sins. Now he's going to make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. That's what the goat will represent. So the goat is killed. The sacrifice is made. And now the, the, the high priest will take the blood from that goat. Once again, enter into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood in front of and on the Ark of the Covenant. 
He comes back out a second time, and once again, he steps behind the booth, disrobes, fully bathes himself, and now puts on a third, brand new piece of white linen. And when he steps out of the booth this time, he takes a second goat, what they call the scapegoat, and he'll take a piece of wool that has been dipped in blood, just literally dripping blood, the blood representing sin. Sin, the wages of sin is death. Here's just all this blood on this day, just visually uh, showing the people sin destroys, sin ruins. It always leads to death and destruction. It's gory because you want to just have emphasized to the people, you want to stay as far away from this as you possibly can. So he takes that piece of wool just dripping with blood and ties it around the neck of that goat. And then he presses hard as he lays his hands on the goat and the high priest begins to confess all of their sins. And when the confession is finished, then the goat is literally sent away, chased away, chased outside of the camp so you will never see that goat again. And it's a symbol how all their sins are being carried away. Well, the whole time this whole ceremony is going on, the whole nation of Israel is standing around the tabernacle. They're watching what's happening because they want to make sure that everything is done in a proper way. That high priest is their representative to the Lord. So in a sense, they're all there that day cheering him on because if everything is done right, then it means all the sins of the previous year have now been atoned for. Now, compare what that high priest, the high priest of the Old Testament did, with what our high priest, Jesus, did when he approached the cross. The week before the crucifixion, he enters the city of Jerusalem. He's already beginning to prepare himself for that sacrifice. The night before the cross, he stays up all night long, washing the feet of the disciples, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. The day of the cross, rather than being dressed in this rich piece of white linen, no, he is stripped of the only garment he actually possesses, and the Roman soldiers begin to gamble over his clothes. In every one of the six illegal trials that he's dragged through, he's constantly surrounded by crowds of people, but the crowds of people are not there to cheer him on. They're there, they're there to jeer and mock and ridicule. And throughout the day, on this path to the cross, not once did Jesus ever have a chance to bathe himself in a pool of pure water. Instead, through every one of those trials, he is constantly bathed in human spit. And then when he finally stands before God, hanging there on the cross, no words of encouragement. Why, even the Father Himself, the Heavenly Father, turns His face away. And in great agony, we hear Jesus cry out, My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And yet it's right at that very moment that once and for all, Jesus is putting an end to our sin. Because unlike the sinful high priest of the Old Testament who had to make a sacrifice for his own sin, no, our perfect Savior offered his own pure body and blood, and he himself became the sacrifice for our sin. Do you not see the contrast? Do you not appreciate the much greater work that Jesus did when he made that sacrifice on the cross? So that's why it says here, the last part of verse 12, it says, but he, Jesus, entered the most holy place once for all, by his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, by his own blood. And thus he obtained a perfect redemption, a redemption that's going to be good for all eternity. So you see verse 13, the blood of goats and bulls, the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean. All that stuff, it can make it clean outwardly. But we need more than just a covering for our sins, you know, wearing a sweater to hide the spot. No, we need more than that. And we have that more in Jesus, verse 14. How much more than well, the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, unblemished God, much more will he cleanse us, not just on the outside, but on the inside, to the conscience, 
that constantly convicts. We know the sin that we have committed, the sin that will lead to our death. And yet now that, that guilt and the shame that goes along with it, now because of Jesus, it's taken away. And now, now that we're released from that, we're free to be the men and women God wants us to be. We are free to serve the living God. I heard a preacher out in Seattle tell about a friend of his, a man who'd uh, been married for many years to this woman, this, his wife that he just dearly loved. And yet through the years of the marriage, they were never as close or as intimate as he desired. And he just couldn't figure out why. Well, it was because his uh, wife was carrying around this terrible sense of shame. She'd been molested as a, little, as a little girl. Then a couple years later, she was raped. And because she didn't know how to cope with either one of those experiences, she spent her teenage years just being very, very promiscuous. In fact, she cheated on her husband during their engagement, and yet she never shared any of those secrets with him. Well, finally, years later, she decided to open up and tell him what she'd done and what had been done to her. And it was hard for her to talk about this because her fear was, if I open up and reveal all of this, he'll want to leave. He'll not want to have anything to do with me again. The one man in my life that I could actually trust, the one man in my life who really does care about me, if I share this, he might like, well, sure enough, she finished her story. He didn't say a word. He was devastated. I mean, you could just tell by the look in his face, he was really shook up. And after sitting there for a while, again, without saying a word, he just got up and walked out the door. And she had no idea where he's going and no idea if he would ever come back. Have I lost him? Well, her husband did something unexpected. The reason he left the house was so he could immediately go to the store and purchase a brand new white nightgown. He had it wrapped up in a beautiful box, and he came back and presented her with a gift and said, please, open it up. And she did, and she pulled it out. Wow, this is nice. And he says, put it on right now. Go ahead and put it on. And so she did. And as she was standing there in that brand new white nightgown, her husband said, honey, from this moment on, that's how I see you. I don't see what you've done in the past. I don't see what others have done to you in the past. I see you as Jesus sees you. You are forgiven. You're clean in his eyes. You're clean in my eyes too. And then he embraced her, just held her for the longest time. And then the two of them sat down and, and they prayed and prayed and prayed. And then for the rest of the night, they just wept tears of joy because now for the first time, the love of Jesus became real for her. Now, for the very first time, she really believed he has forgiven me. See, the cross of Jesus, it does more than just cover our sins. It cleanses them. It wipes the slate clean. It's almost like there at the cross, Jesus built a coffin. And he took every one of our sins and then he buried them 600 feet underground. So none of that stuff will ever be held against you again. And then more than just that, when he forgives, he's not only releasing us and set us, setting us free from the burden and the shame that goes along with it, he sets us free so that now he can get close, so now he can embrace us. And as the Lord embraces us, we're not ashamed at all. Because now we know, as we stand there in his arms, now we know with absolute confidence that we're not guilty anymore, that we are dearly, dearly loved by him. Let's pray.